Today on Not Cleared, Morgan and I talk about five national security influences that nobody in Washington and the world more generally really talks about. We get into the issue of foreign funding that a lot of think tanks and organizations, specifically in D.C., get into. We talk about the idea that access is everything in terms of academics and experts in foreign countries, how if you speak Mandarin, for example, you're going to have more credibility to someone in terms of China policy. We talk about the idea that politicians and people in Washington never really acknowledge when they're wrong, or if they do, they do it in a very subtle way that doesn't draw much attention to a policy that they could have been wrong on. We also touch on how D.C. really rewards those who value the system in terms of just falling into your place in government. You know you're not going to really get much done, but if you do this, this, and this, then you're going to slowly but surely move up the totem pole in Washington, and eventually you're going to get to the top, holding public office or something. And we finish with the idea of institutional tribalism and how that ties everything that we talked about before together in Washington and gives a better picture of why policy and just things more generally are hard to accomplish in D.C. This is Morgan Worthlin. I'm the chief of staff at the center. And I'm Matt Franklin. I'm the center's digital media producer. And today we are going to talk about five things that shape national security that are basically open secrets. But before that, we wanted to ask for your feedback. We want to make this podcast as helpful as possible. And we have been switching off the format every other week. So we do a roundtable with a couple of center experts where we talk about the news of the week, and then we do a deep dive into a more specific topic. So let us know if you like one episode format better, um, if you like the way it is switching off every other week, or if you have other ideas, and you can email us anytime at questions at notcleared.org, and me and Matt will get back to you. All right. These, I think, are the five factors that shape national security the most or national security policy, I should say. Um, And they're also kind of insight into the way that the swamp works, I guess. The biggest secret and probably the thing that influences national security policy the very most is foreign funding. So the way this works is, and this is, I will link to this in the show notes. The Brookings Institution is another think tank. They're a really big thing. They have a lot of employees, a lot of money. And they accept money from foreign countries, sometimes from governments and sometimes just from foreign people. So, for example, um, between 2013 and 2015, they took $15 million from Qatar. Now, that obviously influences the kind of research that they're doing. But it's more, I don't think that any of the analysts would say that it actually affects the research. They would say that they're able to separate it and be independent. But in reality, if that is... It's hard to be objective when China or Qatar is paying your salary. Right. And from I don't think people go out... I, I think it's more human and more complex than people realize. So if you are in charge of an organization and you are, if it's between like letting people go and taking money from a foreign country... You're probably going to take that money and you're going to say, no, we can keep it separate. And and you, it's easier to slide into that than people realize. And then the other thing, too, is not just giving money to think tanks, 
So actually, this was an issue because I think um, the current CIA director was in charge of Carnegie. And there was a program funded by China while he was there. And that's become an issue. Um, So a lot of the time, think tanks are the sort of holding cells for people to go into administrations, depending on who's president, which causes issues. Um, And... Foreign governments are smart. They see that, which is why, in part, that they give money to these organizations. The other way that they do it is um, foreigners will donate to huge foundations like the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation. Some of their endowments were made by foreigners, and then they give money. And then there's also foreign actors. So people like George Soros, who have just tons and tons of money, but don't necessarily have um, one specific country's interest in mind, but have their own ideological goals. And I think what people underappreciate outside of Washington is how much of a problem this is. So Paul Manafort was arrested for violating FARA, which, so if you take money from a foreign government and are gonna be lobbying on behalf of that government, you have to register as a foreign agent but that's almost never enforced. So even though Paul Manafort did violate that, um, nobody follows that as as well as they should. Um, And I think if people did have to disclose that and be more upfront, it would make their analysis a lot less valued, and it probably should be. Well, and people know that too. These think tanks and organizations aren't going to go advertising that they're getting funding from China while they're writing about China or the same with a bunch of these Middle Eastern countries. So, and these places are smart and they know that. And I mean, people just find out this through their tax records or is that usually how it happens? Yeah. And you can hide it pretty easily too. You could, you could, um, you know, donate it to a different foundation or something like that. And then they can donate it. There are ways. And I, you know, it's, it's a big problem. I guess we can leave it at that. The second thing is that access is everything so this happens to individuals and organizations so if you are an expert on a specific country let's say let's say china the way that people think um that you have credibility is if you speak the language and if you visited to, if you've been to china so people that wrote something on china um and got pushback they'd be like well have you even been to china how many times have you been what studies have you done Well, China isn't going to grant access to someone that's very critical of what they're doing, obviously. And when you go to, so they did this with the Soviet Union too. So you're not getting the objective look at it that a normal person would. Um, It's a deliberate move on the Chinese government's part. They, They pick up academic researchers in limos and they treat them really, really well and give them the information that is going to be helpful to that government. And again, I think because of the hubris of the analysts, they tend to think that they can see through it, that they're above being manipulated and that they're too smart to to have that apply to them. But then if you do start to realize, let's say you're 15 years in and you start to recognize and catch on um, and your entire career depends on access to that country, you're probably not going to say anything that's going to get that access taken away from you. Yeah, I mean, this ties into the first problem, foreign funding, how we said that it's very difficult to be objective with that. This is a similar thing. If you have China picking you up in limos and treating you nice and this, that, and the other, it's going to be very hard for you to be objective when you're 
crafting analysis or crafting policy on what the U.S. should do with respect to Taiwan or something like that. And this is just a big problem, once again, that not many people talk about. And just the whole thing about experts, if you have a PhD or something after your title, you automatically get more credibility, whether that's right or wrong. And you see that a lot in the news media. Um, And a lot of people that don't have PhDs, they get criticized. They're like, oh, this guy knows nothing about China. Like he just has his bachelor's degree from this university. Like he knows nothing about the subject. It's very interesting how people, especially in the news media, give or take away credibility from people just based on their name. Right. And I think it's also more subtle than people realize. It's not like you would think it's more black and white, like, oh, I'm going to be a spy for China. So it's not that clear. And most of the time, people don't realize that they are being used or manipulated. And they think that they are objective. So which is so much more powerful than someone that knows that they're, um, you know, like deliberately spying or betraying their country or something. So where this is also an issue is just in D.C. in general. The biggest thing, and I've always said that when I stop being disgusted by D.C., I will need to leave. But the way it works is that everyone's concerned about being in the room. And so everyone says, like, if I can get into this position, then I'll be able to do so much more good. This happens with congressmen. They come, they want term limits, etc. They realize they have to play nice with the leadership to get on the right committees to make the difference that they want. And then that's kind of, that's what I've observed is when people really start to change. It's really hard to maintain your original purpose once you start making those compromises. Well, yeah, and that's, I'm sure there's countless examples of this of people when they're campaigning, they're saying, oh, I mean, drain the swamp is a cliche at this point. Right. Even though some people genuinely are trying to do that and think they can do that when they're running. But once they get in one or two terms and they realize just how hard it is to get anything done, I guess their tone kind of changes when they're campaigning for re-election. Right. It moves, moves from drain the swamp to get things like accomplished, like pass this bill or that bill or something. Right. But then the other thing that happens is that people, so experts, so to speak, or on the national security side, if you want a job, if you're, if, okay, so for example, and I can use this one specifically, the Iran deal was so unpopular. It was, there was Democrats, uh, Senator Bob Menendez, very influential Democratic senator, came out against the Iran deal. And this was in 2015. Every single Republican, there was like 19 or 20 at the time for 2016, was against it. And then when Trump went into office and McMaster was his national security advisor, all the think tanks said, change their tone. They, they didn't say get rid of the Arandal. They said what McMaster was saying, which was we can work with this deal. And they changed what their analysis was based on what they knew the national security advisor wanted because they wanted to be invited to the meetings and they wanted to be in the room. And they say, well, it's better for us to be in the room so we can have a better impact than for us to be totally excluded. Well, (laughs) um, the center did not take that approach. And yeah, we weren't in the room for part of for part of those discussions. We were not welcome, but it ultimately was what President Trump wanted. And um, I guess I don't want to say more about it than that. But the point is that you don't have to have a, a leader that only wants yes men. That's what they get anyway. 
because people naturally shape their opinion because they they feel like unless they have access, their job is useless. Like, what good is my opinion if the person in power doesn't want to hear it? So I guess I better change my opinion. Um, And then this is even more so if you have an interest in a job. So if you want to be credentialed and work in government or in a national security agency um, at any point, then you have to sort of be careful not to upset the apple cart too much. Right. And uh, going back to a point you said earlier, how the center didn't change our stance throughout the Iran deal. We've always been against it because it's a terrible deal. Which is obvious to literally everyone. That's the thing that was so astounding is that it wasn't a close call. And it was so, so clear when people shifted what they were saying. Right. And that, so yeah, just going back the center, kudos to us for sticking (laughs) to our stance on that. But you can see just how that plays out in the think tank industry, but also in the actual government, because the Biden administration is still right trying to get back into the Iran deal, even though Iran doesn't really care about it. And they're going to go ahead and try and enrich uranium, which they're actively doing, and they're close to getting it to weapons grade. But that just shows the Biden administration, they're flip-flopping based on, you know, if Trump wasn't so against the Iran deal, the Biden administration probably wouldn't be trying as hard to get back into it. And that's similar to a lot of these think tanks that you can see, you can go on their websites and notice how the tone of articles and papers that they've written has changed based on who's in office and who they have connections with or who they don't have connections with. Right. Um, Which kind of gets to our next point, but I just, one more thing about the access issue. So with ambassadors, especially who help, who are in the country um, and have the president's ear about a specific policy, if you... Are not, it's really un, there are a lot of ways to make it very hard for you to do your job as, as an ambassador because you're living in that country if you take a tough stance that they don't like. If none of the foreign diplomats will talk to you, you're going to be like, well, my job's, I'm actually not very good at my job. I need these people to like me. And um, why is everyone in Washington so not receptive to constructive criticism? I feel like that's what a lot of this conversation boils down to. Basically, it's really. Th- Honestly, D.C. is a lot like high school in that people really care deeply about these made up, you know, like student body president. It's not based on like the smartest student or whatever. It's a popularity contest. That's kind of like D.C. And there's a bunch of cliques. Everyone has their own group that they want to be in. And no one wants to be on the outside, which is so deeply pathetic and sad. But that really is what it is. Like people have a really hard time not being liked and not getting literally not getting invited to the party like ambassadors don't want to not or even foreign so if you um why can't i think of the name not the ambassador but the people below him oh a career diplomat so if you're working in the embassy you want to have friends in the country and you want to go to the cocktail parties and where the other countries are you know so like if i'm the ambassador to russia and i lay down the law russia can not only make it really hard for me to do my job, but they could say, okay, and these countries don't invite this ambassador to anything. But that is sadly a lot of the time, I mean, you can argue whether or not that's important, but most of the time it's actually not. It really is just effective because these people are so thin skinned and they want to be included and they want the the perks. And that's in DC too. Nobody, and with Republicans especially, they want to go to the parties. They want to be part of the cool crowd. They want the media to like them. That's the thing that I've never understood. I don't either. In D.C. is everyone loves getting dressed up in their tuxes and their $1,000 shoes and going and just 
kissing the you-know-whats of everyone around them, and then they come out of that meeting and think that they've accomplished something. And then they're just going to go back and tweet out, oh, they're going to use all the fluff words, had a productive conversation about how we're going to move this issue to the top of the list, and I stand with you, blah, 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 They'll say all kinds of jargon, like, well, I had a... Um, I communicated with this person and we had to dialogue about this and it's like it, none of it actually means anything. Right. And I mean, and nobody understands what it means either. Nothing gives me more secondhand embarrassment for people than when they fangirl over a politician or a bureaucrat, which is even worse. Right. And a lot of times, and once again, this is more specifically on the right side of the aisle, when these people are campaigning, their slogan is something like, I'm just, I'm your the same as you. Yeah, yeah. I'm your average Joe running. And then when they get into the office, people are literally like bending down and kissing their feet. Like, oh my gosh, Mr. Senator, it's so nice to meet you. Right. But, and, and they the, have, it, it already draws people with big egos to begin with. Right. So it's just, you know, feeds into that. I think most people that are more well-adjusted don't care about this and don't seek it out. Sure. But that's the other thing too, is like politicians and bureaucrats. It's, I think there's a difference if you've done other things in your life and then you decide to go into public service and especially on the national security side there are people that really are for sure great at their job yes but your average bureaucrat it's like you're not actually accomplishing like joe biden's been in office for twenty-seven thousand fifteen years much much longer triple our lifetimes but but yeah and it's not like he had a career before like elon musk really would be interesting to talk to you could take away right. everything he has and he could rebuild it if you take away everything from a politician, they've got nothing. They, and that, uh, that's their very, good skill is lying and manipulating. That's people. very similar to Trump, and that's why so many people hated him. Is because yeah, there there's stuff that both sides out can say yeah that was bad or whatever. But a lot of people didn't like that he was so different from all of these just career bureaucrats right. that have been in there forever, and he was trying to expose all the crap that goes on behind closed doors that nobody will call our congressman out for. And Trump was trying to expose that. and Well, he didn't have any reverence for the, the game and sort of the accepted or the hoops that people jump through. And they hated that because yeah. he was, and that's why I think he was so great on foreign policy specifically is because he was a wild card. Right. And China, Russia, North Korea didn't know what the heck he was going to do sometimes, which is great. And contrast that with Joe Biden, where everybody knows his foreign policy. It's been extremely weak and the saying that he's been wrong on every national security issue his entire life our enemies know that too and they're right. aware of this but that's that's why i think trump was good is because nobody knew what he was thinking well so the next thing number three is that nobody acknowledges when they're wrong and part of this is just cognitive dissonance it's really as human beings we're not wired to to be good at recognizing when we're wrong in fact a lot of times when faced with evidence that we've been wrong it makes us further um, double down on our opinion but with so much that so you can see how if nobody's being honest and foreign policy is actually not that difficult it's pretty straightforward and, and it but it gets distorted by intellectuals that make it more complicated than it is most of the time but and then you add in the foreign money and you add in the fact that no one's really saying their opinion and you can see how terrible ideas get entrenched but then you add it to the system so if you're an arms control and your job has been to negotiate arms control treaties, you're never, that is your interest. Your interest is to continue that. Because if we decide, hey, this treaty is not in the interest of the United States because no one's following it, then 30 years of your career is wasted. So then it's tied to your job and you can't say, actually, maybe this is a mistake. 
and they're just to go around with no one acknowledging when they're wrong, even if they were to acknowledge that they were wrong, or if it's clear that they did something wrong, even if they're not acknowledging it, there isn't a lot of accountability. Right. And there's no way, I mean, if you're just an elected Democrat, like in some California district or a very red district, there aren't really any consequences for your actions. So why are you going to come and admit that you're wrong or something? Right. Or even for advisors or bureaucrats, really. So if you think of like any, you know, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, they have these crazy ideas and they sound crazy, but they have to put those to the test and prove it or not. With government, it's, you can't really prove, there's no way to correct, it's not, um, let me think of it. It's not as black and white, even though to a lot of people it is black and white. You know, if for Elon Musk at Tesla, if airbags or something are broken on that, everyone sees that it's objective, that's wrong, they're going to correct it. Well, but but in, car- Cong- in Congress, it's a, there's a lot more gray area with whether yeah. we should be spending $10 trillion or $11 trillion well, but on like Right bill. now, we're talking about infrastructure and, and doubling down and spending more on social programs. Which, just before when, you get into that, I looked at the infrastructure bill just before we did this. It's like 2,700 pages or something. I right, mean, how, how does nobody has read that entire no. thing cover to cover at all? I, and that's just comes back to how nothing ever gets accomplished here. But also, all of our social programs have failed objectively. The, we spend more on education than any other country per student, and our test scores have just gone down since the Department of Education was created. Like you can, none of our social programs are successful, but the no one cares about that. And the argument would be, well, they didn't have enough money, so it's always, well, we need more money, we need more departments, which is part of why. I mean, this just kind of gets down to the problems with the government in general. But on the national security side, um, if you're wrong about something. You can just, there's not really a way to definitively prove that. So you can just stick with the same crappy idea forever and ever. So for example, I will give two. Um, The Abraham Accords, everybody said, and this is where Trump's strength was. Trump had, didn't have um, established opinions on a lot. He came into it and looked at it and took a lot of the time, the common sense approach. Okay, Israel should, the embassy should be in Jerusalem because that's the capital. And what experts say is, no, no, you can't do that because it's going to make the the Muslim world really mad and they're going to attack you. And then he does it and nothing happens and it's fine. And then they say, well, that was just lucky or, you know, they, they never can say, OK, I guess we were wrong. So, yeah, the two sides of the coin, they those people aren't admitting that they're wrong. And they also would never in a bajillion years admit that Trump was right on something foreign policy really, yeah. because they're like, oh, He's just this rich billionaire that came in here and he thinks that he solved this crisis or made these countries like each other more in the Middle East. Trump had a much more, um, he was sort of an outlier in his crazy effect on, you know, Trump derangement syndrome. But with the Abraham Accords, for decades, literally decades, the establishment has said that to have peace, so basically in the Middle East, the Muslim world was like, Israel, if you want us to acknowledge your existence, you have to make peace with the Palestinians first. And the Palestinians would say, screw you, Israel. And then it would end there. And so where Jared Kushner, who's like 36 at the time, had no experience, said, all right, so we're going to try and make a a deal with the Palestinians. But if they say no, then that's on them. We're not going to wait for them. And everyone freaked out. Everyone said, you know, John Kerry said, there's no way that anything's going to happen without a peace agreement from the Palestinians. 
and then they're proved wrong. And this is such an obvious thing. This isn't doesn't require genius or a billionaire. It's just obvious. And the problem is how distorted it was for decades. That's the issue is that the system creates these sort of established consensus. And it's really hard to go back to anything reasonable because so many people have so much stake in the current structure of the way things are. And people are never going to make concessions like the thing with, you know, the Palestinians aren't going to budge on their stance there. But so the obvious choice is, all right, then we've got you know at some point you have to at some point you have to meet in the middle and that's what happens with a lot like there was something with like it was with the iron dome funding and whatever bill was recently talked about or whatever and the democrats aren't budging on their position and the republicans aren't budging on theirs even though we think that the iron dome needs to be funded no one ever meets in the middle on these things and that's what leads to all these roadblocks and everything taking forever and just boils well, down would, to nothing getting I would I think these are two different things because with Congress I think that's good personally gridlock like the system is supposed to not work very well because we want legislation passed that people agree with and if there's disagreement um and it doesn't you know that's a good thing but on a foreign policy side when it's people advising the president and the advisors are the ones saying for no reason, like there's no constraints. They just get stuck in like the worst kind of groupthink possible. But it goes on for decades. And then still the Abraham Accords were an objective success. And they say, oh, those don't exist. They're not real. No one cares about them. But if you really think about it on a human level, you can understand how someone who had spent their entire career on the Israeli peace process would not be able to accept that their work was a total waste and that they've been wrong forever. You know, yeah. Or imagine if someone had been serving in Afghanistan the past however many years, and then one day when Biden withdraws the troops, all that work just is thrown out the window, essentially. Right. Okay. And then the other thing is, so um, Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, I'm not his biggest fan. I think he's responsible for a lot of the terrible foreign policy decisions we've had in the last forever. Basically, all of them. Um, you know, he reopened China and he kept detente going and detente was, hey, we can't we're not going to do anything to the Soviets. We're just going to we're not going to increase our nuclear weapons or anything. So hopefully they're nice to us, which was stupid. Um, and and then Ronald Reagan came in and said, no, we're going to we're going to eliminate the Soviet Union. And then it fell apart because it wasn't that hard to do. The Soviet Union lasted so long because it was propped up by people like Henry Kissinger. On his end, it was an accident. But um Kissinger could not stand Reagan's policy and he kept trying to get into his circle and he kept trying to talk to his advisors and say, hey, you've got to go back to detente, even as Reagan's policy was clearly working. So he kept inviting different people. And so the advisors, you know, had listened and were respectful, but then ultimately didn't change anything. So then Kissinger got business people and other, um, you know, titans from other industries to come in and try to talk to these advisors to convince them that his way was right like he could not let it go because that was his entire career also henry kissinger's accent is fake and that's my favorite thing that i've ever heard in dc so i mean the pettiness also can't be under um can't be overestimated here and there is there is a part that is commendable you know if you've been working your whole life on something you're not gonna give up your stance very quickly but at the same time that just comes back you need to be able to make concessions or realize and say hey i was wrong and especially in something right. when for, with foreign policy where stuff is constantly changing where a policy that the united states had in 2015 isn't going to be the best thing to have in 2021 
working on something your whole life, I can understand and be sympathetic to that. But the problem is when you think that you're the only person that's right, that is hubris. And that is really what the issue and, and DC fosters that kind of pettiness and pride because there's no checks on it. Which brings me to the, the next point, which is that DC rewards those who value the system. So if you're super into the cocktail parties and you love it and you fangirl over every, you know, congressman and think it really you're going to do well because it really is just about or you think that when you meet these people and they say oh it's so nice to meet you so and so if you think that that congressperson is actually going to remember you you're just wrong and they don't or that they're not going to stab like they may listen to you but they i'm personally just extremely skeptical of all politicians you know like i just think that you should be yeah, and they can have a nice conversation with you one on one saying, Oh, those are good points, I agree with that, but then they'll you'll see them on the news the next day saying the exact opposite thing of what you just talked to them about for an hour. Right. But if you point out the frivolity of the conferences and the wastefulness of some of these things that just are basically designed by these people to prop themselves up in a really sad and pathetic way, you're not gonna be um moving up in those circles. Which which honestly does make sense. You know, it, in this system has just been around forever. The swamp has been here forever. And if you do rock the boat, you're not going to be able to advance and make your way up in the system. Right, which is, again, how we have really bad policy for decades. And the biggest issue is, like, everyone can talk behind closed doors and say, yeah, you know, the CIA is a big problem. It really needs to be cleaned out. But then even people that agree with that and would say that publicly are probably not going to do that job if they're in charge of it because they if they have future ambitions. If I were president, which I never will be or would care to run, um, I would only hire people that had no interest in further government service because other, you know, because then they're actually going to do what they think should be done instead of being because if you were to try and clean out the CIA, you're going to get all kinds of leaks. You're going to have congressional hearings and you're going to be accused of of all kinds of things, it would be hard for you to get beyond that if you wanted to be president or have another high position. So, And I think that's a thing that I've just been trying to think about analogies. You know, if you're um, like working for some NFL team, if you're working for the Washington football team, because you can't call them the Redskins because that's racist, and you are like a lower level person trying to become like the general manager or something, there's a goal your team is trying to win the super bowl each year so you're going to do specific things in your job every day to try and get better players so that you can win the super bowl but in the government there isn't really one big clear obvious objective Mm -hmm. like that so well the thing that all these people are striving for is just to move higher up higher up so they can get a more cushy salary and and in the government the higher up you are the less you work which people aren't going to like that, but it is the truth. We've talked with many people that have served in the government and they tell us that's the truth. And it's also obvious. It's, it's blatantly obvious. And that just because there isn't this big goal that everyone's shooting for, why are you going to try to help out build a road here or a bridge here for some local community? You're not going to care about that. You're going to go to all these fancy cocktail parties. You're going to schmooze with people and nothing is going to get accomplished. Well, this is why, and this brings me to the final point. Um, where in national security, in especially pre-World War II, there was clear, the, the national interest was very clearly defined. Throughout the Cold War, it was very clearly defined. Now it's not. And so people, you know, their career becomes whatever. So like 
again, arms control, that is your career. Your corporate interest is to continue arms control, whether or not that is in American interest or not. And it's the same thing with, so the final thing is the extent to which institutional tribalism influences things. So if you're at the CIA, everyone, you know, you're going to say all the other intelligence agencies suck. But they really do believe it. Um, and this is true pretty much wherever you go. And you can, and it sounds so stupid, but it's actually really a problem. And it's funny because, once again, bring it back to like a quote-unquote real-life example. Like if you're an Apple versus Microsoft, though you guys are like making similar products, but they're, an iPhone's different from like a Microsoft phone or whatever. But in the intelligence community, all all everyone's goal should be protecting the United States. That shouldn't be a constant battle of, oh, our intel is better than yours. But that does take place. And that's, on a previous episode, we talked to Fred about how the presidential daily brief, which is this, this big email now that the president gets just of all the top intelligence stories or whatever, and some intelligence agencies were kind of upset that they weren't included in that yeah. so it really affects the way that they conduct their research right and it's easy to blame other agencies for problems that happen it's a way to avoid accountability but mostly it comes down to budgets because if your job is on the line unless you can show that this should still exist or is, is an effective thing um i think that's a big part of it too but this also happens with subject matter so experts get so absorbed in their Let's say you're a China per- Well, China actually probably is the biggest threat. But let's say Russia is a big problem. It's not our bi- our biggest threat. But um, just the nature of it is that national security people really hyper-focus on their thing. And then they can't imagine why not everyone sees it as the biggest problem to address. And that's sort of where these agencies on a larger scale, the same thing happens. So the State Department, the joke is that there should be an American desk there because the Iran desk is so concerned about what Iran's up to and what they're doing that nobody's arguing for the interests of america and they're all because they want to you know they're talking to iranian diplomats or whatever and they have those interests in mind and they want to continue those relationships and that happens on a massive scale at the end of the cold war when there was no longer an obvious threat and it became much more vague as to what our national interest was and it became much more about international institutions and multilateralism and all these buzzwords I think that's further eroded where people are tying the ultimate goal to their actual job so to summarize it you can start to see the real problems where coming up with a good policy there are so many roadblocks to it but the good news is and the flip side is that analysis isn't the real problem it's actually not that hard it's just being willing to be honest and not be so concerned about what everyone's going to think and what they're going to say. And when you, when that happens, good policy is the result. So that's one of the things that I like about working at the center is that, I mean, our analysis is good because we are not afraid to actually say what everyone else is thinking, even though it puts us, you know, in the line of fires, not the metaphorically (laughs) um, at times, because we're usually first to actually be the one to say it out loud. Um, So the point is that these problems are fixable and it's not that that good policy is absolutely impossible. Um, And it's more simple to fix than to get there than you would think, but it just requires people 
not caring what other people think about yeah, them people, really genuinely they need to get rid of their egos they need to look at objective analysis that the center and a bunch of these other organizations are producing on a day-to-day basis and even if it's not the exact policy that they want or like they need to look at what's in the best interest of the united states and for some reason putting america first has it has a negative connotation now which makes no sense to me but that's at the end of the day what a lot of these politicians need to put aside and just look at what is going to be the best for the United States in the long run. Right. And pe- and presidents shouldn't hire people that are for- concerned about their future careers and that are going to not tell them the truth. Really, just if you people just told the truth and weren't so pathetic and wanted to be popular, then we wouldn't have a lot of the problems that we do. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notclear.org so we can get in touch with you.